So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Exodus chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, whether you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. 
But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Amen. May God bless his word. And let me say a a very uh, warm welcome to you all this morning and a good morning. Very good to see you all, uh, particularly warm welcome. Good morning, John. Particularly warm welcome to to anyone who's uh, new. I think there are a few newer folks joining us this morning. You're very, very welcome. And we hope you have a good time with us this morning. And please, if you're able, stick around at the end of the service uh, and let us get to know you and you as uh, a little bit better. Um, uh, We're going to be looking, as Kevin has mentioned, at Exodus chapters 5 and the first half of chapter 6. It is quite a long uh, chunk of of text, um, and um, as I often say is the case, it would be helpful to me and to you to have that open um, over the next few minutes, just to track that what I'm saying uh, is from the Bible and aren't just uh, my thoughts this morning. Uh, Before we think about that chapter together, though, let me pray and ask for God's help. For the word of God is living and active, writes the author of Hebrews, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our God and Father, we praise you this morning for your word, and that it is powerful, that it is active. And so we pray that you would please be active among us and within us as we spend time thinking of it and on it over the coming few minutes. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, um, there are a number of famous freedom speeches or cries for freedom that are sort of etched into public consciousness or or into Western pop culture. Think of uh, historical speeches, Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech, for example. Just listen to how that speech concluded. If we allow freedom to ring, he said, if we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we'll be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank the Lord Almighty, We are free 
at last. King's speech, famous as it is now, was a cry for freedom. Think perhaps instead of the now famous words that weren't spoken by a historical character, even if we might associate them with one, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our, and I don't even need to finish it. You know how it finishes, our freedom. That kind of freedom cry, it can be a stirring thing, can't it? Even if it's spoken by an Australian actor rather than a Scottish freedom fighter. They're intended to move people, to move them emotionally, of course, but also to move them to action. What happens, though, when, when a freedom speech or a cry or a plea for freedom, what happens when it doesn't have the desired effect? When it fails to change things? I guess in certain situations, the freedom fighter who made the speech might go down in history as a glorious martyr. But what if a cry for freedom not only fails to change the oppressor, what if it even turns the oppressed people against the freedom cause? Imagine uh, Mel Gibson's cry for freedom somehow turning the Scots troops against him, for example. I think you would have to conclude in that situation that the speech itself was a bit of a failure. And you might even conclude that the one who made the speech, Australian actor or not, was a bit of a letdown too. And that is just the kind of conclusion we're being, I guess, led to draw at the end of Exodus chapter 5. By the end of Exodus 5, we're left with a failed speech, an apparently failed cause, and what might look like a failed God. And all of that feels so jarring, given what's just come before it. You might have felt that, actually, if you were here for our study in the book of Exodus last Sunday morning. You might remember that things ended on a bit of a high last week. God's people had been living as slaves in Egypt. Life was immensely hard for them. But God had promised he was going to do something about it. He was going to rescue them out of slavery. He was going to lead them into a land of their own, a land of freedom, of abundance. And as we ended things last week at the end of chapter 4, God's people, they were fully on board with God, and they were on their knees before him, worshipping him, who's promised to free them. And so we come to God's freedom speech, which is right up there, surely, in the top three freedom cries throughout all of history. Just read that with me. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go. And if the story is going to go as, as, as it should, or at least as the Israelites think it should, that should be that. Pharaoh should do what Moses says and should let God's people go. Job done. And yet instead, we get Exodus chapter 5. Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. And instead of freedom, things get even more restricted for God's people. And so by the end of the chapter, as they survey the, the, the wreckage, if you like, the question that leaves God's people with is, well, what does any of that say about the one who's promised to free us? Not only has he not saved us, he's made life worse. 
See, their life circumstances suggest that this God might not be all he was cracked up to be. And let me just say this morning, that isn't a purely historical question for God's people back then. It is very much a live one for us too. Because you see, that the entirety of the Christian faith, it is a rescue story, much like the Exodus. God has promised to rescue his people now, not from slavery to a dictator like Pharaoh, but from slavery to something the Bible calls sin, to a life lived in rebellion against God and from all its consequences. And also, like the Israelites, he's promised not just to rescue us from something, but to rescue us to something, all the way to a promised land, not flowing with milk and honey, but to a wonderful new creation. And yet, as we survey our life circumstances, I wonder if we too might ever be asked, or be forced to ask whether he's really going to keep that promise. Given how things can sometimes look in life, the the, the disappointments, the trials, the difficulties, can you really trust God to get you all the way to that new creation if you're a Christian? Is he up to the job? Or is it all just wishful thinking? The same question being asked by them then in Exodus 5, being asked by us now, perhaps in our quieter and more honest moments. And in answer to both of us, the message of Exodus 5 and 6 is the same. Even if life's circumstances may well lead us to doubt, the God of the Christian faith is fiercely committed and he is absolutely able to keep his promise, to lead them and to lead us safely home. Now that's where we're heading this morning. But let's see how Exodus takes us there. Let's get into the text itself. We'll do that firstly under the heading, Christian, when life falls short of your great expectations. Now, so far in the book of Exodus, we've seen that the God whom Moses is following is just extraordinary. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in chapter 3 and again last week, didn't we? He is inapproachably holy. That means he is perfect and pure and other in all he does. He is self-sustaining. He is self-defining. In one sense, completely unlike anyone or anything else. And that means that as Moses returns to Egypt in Exodus chapter 5, and he steps up to the plate to relay a message from this God to Pharaoh, to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, well, it stands to reason that Pharaoh's going to listen. And it is just that expectation that makes Pharaoh's response quite so jarring. Chapter 5, verse 2. Read that with me if you would. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. I don't even know who this God is. Why should I listen to him, he says. Moses' plea hits a brick wall. And actually, as I mentioned a moment ago, it doesn't just hit a brick wall. Pharaoh is actually stirred to make things even worse for God's people. Track that with me if you would. Chapter 5, verse 9. Pharaoh says, Let heavier work be laid on the men of Israel, that they may labor at it, 
and pay no regard to lying words. Instead of being given the materials they need to complete their, their building work as slaves, the straw to make bricks, for example, God's people are told they have to source those materials themselves. And even though that obviously takes much more time, well, they're all expected to be just as productive as they were before. Chapter 5, verse 14 Uh, The foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Can you see, far from lifting the burden of slavery from God's people, well, it only really seems to turn the screw. Let my people go, said God, and the result, it seems, is the opposite. And perhaps understandably, the Israelites feel that, that, well, Moses has let them down. Moses was God's spokesman. He convinced them to get on board. And so we read chapter 5, verse 21. They said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge, because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses only seems to have made things worse. And that triggers a sort of chain reaction of disappointment. The Israelites, you're angry with Moses. Moses is then let down by God, he says. Chapter 5, verse 22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Can you see, for the Israelites, as for Moses, circumstances have fallen well short of their expectations. And in fact, those circumstances were making Moses conclude, at least, that their God wasn't out for their good at all. He had, in Moses' words, done evil to them. Now that's a very strong thing to say about God, isn't it? Especially from one of God's servants. And yet I wonder if your life circumstances have ever made you express a similar kind of concern. I've mentioned that for us today, that the promises in Exodus don't apply in exactly the same way to us as they did then. They don't point to a physical rescue to a promised land. They point Christians further forward than that to our future in a new creation. A place where God has recreated everything that is sad and broken and fallen and made it new. But even if we know that that's what God has promised us as Christians, I wonder if circumstances might ever lead us to doubt that he'll actually pull it off. As you reflect on the circumstances of your own life, or, or whether bereavement or, or, or serious illness or, or mental ill health or relational difficulties, the countless silent battles faced in a room like this one day by day. I thought God was on our side you might think. I thought God had promised to rescue us. So why is it that after starting to follow him, life isn't any easier at all? And if anything, well, it seems to have got even harder. Is God really true to his word? You see, when our circumstances and the reality, they're at odds with one another, can we really trust God to keep his promises? It's a question that hangs over Exodus chapter 5, and it's one that we may well ask ourselves. And in response to that question, we're given two answers in Exodus chapters 5 and 6. We're encouraged firstly to remember what was actually promised, 
And we're encouraged, secondly, to remember who made the promise. Let's think about that under our next heading. Remember what has and what hasn't been promised. Now, I wonder if you've ever been accused of breaking a promise or, or, or a commitment that you didn't actually make in the first place. Is that something you're, you're familiar with at all? It can be quite a low-key thing. Let me give you a, an entirely hypothetical example. This definitely has not happened in my life over the past week or two. Daddy, you said if we clear our Lego away, we can have sweets for tea. Okay? Again, completely hypothetical. Any, any resemblance to real-life situations or characters is entirely accidental. It can be a, a, a low-key thing, but it can be a lot more serious. I witnessed that firsthand in one of the cases I was involved in, in in my old job as a solicitor. An individual approached my firm and he told us that he owned and he let out a holiday apartment on a weekly basis. It was let on lots of the holiday cottage websites. And the reason he'd come to us was that he had a bit of a problem with the flat because someone had let the apartment for a week through one of those holiday websites and nothing seemed unusual at that stage. But after the week was over... The holiday maker refused to leave. And he claimed that our client had actually let the flat to him permanently. Uh, so the place was his to stay in. And so two weeks had passed, and three weeks had passed, and four weeks had passed, and the guy refused to leave. And our client, he was at the end of himself. He wanted to know what on earth he could do to sort the problem out. And for a couple of different reasons, for, for very practical reasons, of course, he was having to cancel bookings. He'd taken for the subsequent weeks. He didn't think any holiday makers would be up for sharing their holiday home with a squatter. But also because the whole thing just felt so unfair. That's what he said. He was, he was being held to a commitment that he'd never made in the first place. It felt like a really awful misrepresentation of who he was as a person, that he was being accused of being a liar. And as we put Exodus chapters 5 and 6 in the context of what we've seen so far in the book of Exodus, we begin to see that is exactly how God's people were treating God. It might help us to see that actually. Again, if you have a Bible, just turn back to chapter 3 of Exodus with me if you would. If you don't, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll read the verses out. But if you do, chapter 3 and verse 17. God says this to Moses. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. So God has made a promise to Moses that he would rescue his people and take them into a promised land. That is true. But then read on to verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So Pharaoh isn't going to like it. So I'm going to have to deal with him before he'll then let you go. That's what he's saying. God had told Moses that this was going to happen. And not only did Moses know that, Well, so did the rest of God's people. That was how chapter 4 ended. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Aaron told them everything God had said. I wonder if you can see what that means. It means that by the end of chapter 5, the people are upset with Moses. Moses is upset with God. They think God has, has done evil to them. He's broken his promise. 
even though he's done exactly what he said he would do. Can you see the problem in Exodus 5 is not that God has broken his promise. It's that they hadn't listened to the promise. They were holding God to a commitment that he had not made. And so, very often, do we. I remember sitting with a young man a number of years ago whose life, um, by, by any measure, had been extremely difficult. Some really horrible things had been done to him and said about him by, by anyone's standards. And they'd really taken their toll on him in, in lots of different ways. And through that process, what had once been a vibrant Christian faith had sort of atrophied away. God has left me, he said. We sat on a park bench. God has left me, he said. Why shouldn't I do the same to him? Now, you can understand the logic. And you might even be able to empathize with the logic. You might be feeling the same way yourself this morning. And uh, that kind of disillusionment, it can lead some people to walk away from the Christian faith altogether. Because frankly, if God can't keep his promises to me in this life, in the here and now, well, what hope is there that he's going to keep his promises when they come to the future? to eternal life, to this new creation you keep talking about. But even if you can understand that logic, well, I wonder if you can see its fatal flaw. It's the same mistake that the Israelites had made. It's holding God to a promise that he has not made. God has promised that anyone who follows him, who trusts in Jesus, will be rescued. He's promised that he will take them safely to a wonderful new creation. And even in the here and now, he has promised himself. He's promised to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with his people, to never leave nor forsake them. But listen, he has also been crystal clear that following Jesus is cross-shaped. It is painful. He's been very clear that this side of that new creation... That the earth is, in one sense, still under curse. That it groans. And that we will suffer the effects of living in a broken and a fallen world in the here and now. That is all baked into God's promised rescue of his people. Now, saying none of that is to downplay how serious sufferings might have been, might still be right now. Nor is it to suggest that God doesn't care about you in those sufferings, that all that really matters to him is is getting you to the end point. He does care. Jesus himself wept as he stood at his friend's graveside, both through the sadness of losing a friend, but principally through, through anger at the suffering of people in this world. God cares. He really does. But we cannot conclude from the fact that life is hard that our circumstances aren't what we think they should be, we cannot conclude that God therefore can't be trusted. There was a really quick sidebar. That's why movements like the prosperity gospel, if you've ever come across that kind of teaching before, are really toxic, like really, really damaging. Televangelists, people you may have come across, Joel Osteen or Joseph Prince, will tell people that they just need to have greater faith, and if they believe more, then God will bless them with a life of wealth and material prosperity. You see the problem? They're holding God to a promise he has not made. And in the end, when that prosperity doesn't come, when life is hard, 
What does it do to people's faith? Well, they question whether God's really that faithful after all. No, no, God is good. His promises to his people are extraordinary. They are wonderful. But please do not be despondent when he doesn't keep promises that he hasn't made. Instead, cling to the wonderful promises that he has. That's the first part of the the answer to this problem in Exodus 5 and 6. But it isn't the, the, the whole answer. Because you might still be wondering why you, why you should cling to those promises. Why should Moses and the rest of the people cling to those promises, even if they are holding on to the right ones? Why should they hold fast to them? Well, that's the second part of the answer. It comes in chapter 6. And it is because of just who it is that's making those promises. That's our final point this morning. Remember exactly who made them. I think it's fair to say we do tend to treat promises differently depending on who has made them. Words cost nothing. Anyone could promise to do anything for you today, couldn't they? But if you're actually going to to, to rely on those words, if you're going to trust someone that they're going to keep their words, well, you'd be wise to make sure that they actually have the resources to, 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 to keep that promise, that they're up to the task. Let me give you an example. Imagine that your laptop were to break, okay? A computer were to break, which is bad news for you. You need the laptop that week. Imagine that I were to swoop in to save the day, okay? And to promise to fix that laptop and have it back to you by the end of the day. Great. Great news. Or is it? Not because I don't want to help or or, I don't have good intentions, but that promise really isn't worth relying on because I know nothing about computers. After turning it off and then turning it back on again, that's me out pretty much. If you're going to put your faith in a promise, you've got to be pretty certain that the promise maker is able to keep it. And that is part of the problem in Exodus 5 and 6. People don't just get into a mess because they haven't really listened to the promise God has made them, although they do. They also have forgotten the one who's making the promise, that he is trustworthy. Just notice that with me at the beginning of chapter 6. As God responds to Moses and to all his people for that matter, and he responds to their upset with him, their, their accusation almost at him, well, he doesn't try to justify his course of action or to explain how it is he's doing things strategically. No, he reminds Moses who he's dealing with, and then he restates the promise. Can you see that? Chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Repeats the same thing, verses 6, 7, and 8. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. It's as much as to say, remember who you're dealing with, Moses. Remember who made you this promise. I am the Lord. And just notice, he is the Lord in three tenses. He always has been, he is, and he always will be. Firstly, he always has been the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. He always has been the Lord. The promise he's made to his people in Exodus isn't brand new. He has always been a promise-making God, and he has been faithful to his people. 
Not only that, he still is the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant, that promise-making, promise-keeping God. That is the same God I am today, he says. I hear your groaning. And because all of that is true, because he has always been the Lord, because he is the Lord now, you can be confident that he always will be. That is the logic in these verses, I think. Just notice one word in verse 6 that make that point for us. I've been faithful in the past. I'm faithful now. Chapter 6, verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He's shown his faithfulness in the past. He remains faithful today so you can trust him with tomorrow. Now even when Moses tells the people all of that they refuse to listen. Verse 9 They're still too damaged, it seems, by the situation they find themselves in. And even Moses himself, verses 10 to 12, still needs some convincing. So if you are struggling to trust God's promise to rescue you, even after he's made that promise time and time and time again, you aren't the only one. But this pattern, the pattern of Exodus 6, looking to God's actions in the past to grow our confidence in his actions in the future, that remains the shape of the Christian faith. Now, if you've been around Hebron over the past few weeks, and and even prior to Christmas, actually, you'll be aware that we uh, ran a course called Hope Explored over the past few Tuesday evenings. Thank you very much to those who came and uh, to those who prayed about the course. We had a super time, uh, and we worked through the course, actually, as a whole church family last January. Some of you might remember doing that. It's It's a great course. I personally benefit from the material each time I'm involved in running it. But this time, one particular thing sort of stood out to me um, as we worked through the materials. It was the definition of hope that the guy who wrote the materials, a guy called Rico Tice, the definition he gives for Christian hope. This is what he says. He says that Christian hope is a confident expectation for the future based on true events in the past that bases everything, that changes everything about my present. Notice the three tenses again. Hope has an eye to the future. It's a confidence that God will do what he's promised to do. And that isn't a blind hope. It's based on his track record. True events in the past. What events is he talking about? Well, most supremely for us at this point in salvation history, he's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Because whilst we'll experience our rescue, whilst we'll experience all its benefits in the future, well, in one sense, that rescue is already a done deal. Why? Well, because Jesus Christ has already died and has been risen again. That is a historical event. You can hang your hat on it. And because you can, you can have confidence in what he's promised for the future. And that means, people of God, as you wait for that future, even when life circumstances might make his promise feel remote or unlikely, he is the Lord. He always has been the Lord. He always will be the Lord. And so you can wait with faith that he can, that he will lead his people, lead you safely home. Now, if you are here this morning and and perhaps wouldn't describe yourself as, as being a Christian, 
I do think all of this is really worth you giving serious thought to as well. See, if you've been able to empathize with that sense that life circumstances sometimes feel like a bit of a letdown, the things in this world are, are jarring, they're not as they're meant to be, well, that's because in one sense they aren't as they're meant to be. Our world was created good, but things have been broken and fractured by, by human action, by our sin. Again, that word the Bible uses for it, a rebellion against God. But part of the hope of the Christian faith is that one day, all of that brokenness, it will be undone. The world will be remade new. And every tear we've experienced in this world will be wiped away from our eyes by the one who's done that remaking. It is a wonderful, wonderful hope. And it's a hope from which anyone might benefit. If only we would humbly turn to him for forgiveness and trust in him. Listen, the Lord has promised that glorious future. He has shown himself to be trustworthy in the past. And the question for each one of us this morning is, therefore, will you trust him in the present? Let's pray to him now. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who makes promises who has promised to rescue your people and to bring them safely home. We thank you that when we trust in Jesus and his death for us, even though we don't deserve to be beneficiaries of that uh, promise, we are. And yet we acknowledge that you've also promised hardship and difficulty before we get there. Would you please forgive us for when we forget that part of the promise, when we treat the hardships we face now as proof that you aren't good to your word, that you don't care about us. Help us, Lord, to see and to trust that you are good to your word. And therefore to trust you with all we face in the days and the months and the years to come. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.